Welcome to another episode of Build Up One Another. I'm your host, Karen Temple. This is where I interview accomplished men and women who know that to go far, you go with one another. Join us as we unpack the stories behind their key relationships with people in their lives and learn how this has shaped and impacted where they've gone and who they've become. Our guest today is Emily Moore. Emily began her career in 1992 as a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford University, and in 2016, she became recognized as one of 100 Global Inspirational Women in Mining. For the first 10 years, Emily was at Xerox Research Centre of Canada, scaling up new materials and processes from the lab to manufacturing. She then spent another 10 years at Hatch, a global engineering firm serving the mining, energy, and infrastructure sectors. There, she led international teams developing new product and service offerings and delivering major projects. Throughout her career, Emily consistently moved up the ranks from engineer all the way through to managing director at Hatch, taking on increasing levels of responsibility, requiring greater levels of leadership. And now that is where Emily has turned her full-time attention to building the next generation of engineer leaders as the director of Troost iLead at the University of Toronto. Emily, welcome to Build Up One Another. Thank you. I am so excited to have you on our show. And I want to start at the beginning, because as they say, that's always a good place to begin. <laughs> a Rhodes Scholar, you began an incredible career getting your achieving your doctorate in physical chemistry at Oxford University as a Rhodes Scholar. And for those listening, the Rhodes Scholar is an international postgraduate award that allows students to study at Oxford University. It was established, I believe, about 120 years ago. And to give you an idea of just the prestige of this award, there have been so many notable previous Rhodes Scholars. So one, for example, would be the former president of the United States, Bill Clinton. Yep, he was elected the year I went up. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. So, so was, all the all the Americans I went with were all preparing to be the next Bill Clinton. And Cory Booker yes. is one of them. He was one of the uh, people in my year. <laughs> so you were on definitely yeah, the yeah. up-and-coming rock stars yes, of the world. Yeah. And currently, the current uh, Deputy Prime Minister of Canada, Christia Freeland, mm -hmm. also That's a right. Rhodes Scholar. A couple of years ahead of me, yeah. So I'm really curious. So coming out of your bachelor degree at Queen's University in Ontario, Canada, you had your sights set on the stars. And I'm wondering if you can take us back there. What was it that triggered you to say, hey, but I want to become a Rhodes Scholar? So actually, I was encouraged to apply. I would probably have never have thought of applying. Um, I was a leader. I knew I was a leader. How did you um, know you were a leader? I, at the time, I would say, well, I've been one of those kids that uh, they now talk about bossy little girls are displaying leadership skills. I was a little girl who displayed a lot of leadership skills. So I was an organizer in my neighborhood, um, organizing the other kids to put shows on and that kind of thing. And then, you know, head girl of my high school, ultimately at Queens, I was the president of the student union, the central student union. Um, and that, the reason I actually went for that sort of level of responsibility was in response to the Montreal massacre. So when the Montreal massacre happened, which for your podcast listeners, if, uh, if you're not Canadian, you may not know this, or if you're younger than a certain age, about 30 years ago, just over 30 mm -hmm. years ago, December the 6th, 1989, there was a massacre of um, 14 women at a engineering school in Quebec. And, uh, 
that was sort of the moment that I woke up and became politically active. So I'd always been a leader and involved in student government, but had never sort of had a sense of mission. And so when uh, I was asked to run for the student union president at Queens, my, my undergraduate degree, I kind of had this mission around um, social, social justice and, and uh, representation on the campus. So I, that kind of inspired me into this action. And because of that, taking on that bigger role and a, a bigger sense of social action, I had a number of people saying you should be applying for the Rhodes Scholarship. You'd be a great candidate. Who were those people? Um, two in particular. One was a friend of mine's father who had been a Rhodes Scholar himself and so saw me as someone who um, had kind of fit the bill, I guess, the kind of person that the, 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 the award is there to recognize. And then one of my professors, uh, Jim McCowan, who was the uh, associate dean at the time at, at Queen's, and he had been my chemistry professor all the way back from first year and knew me extremely well and really encouraged me to, to apply for the scholarship. How did he get to know you so well? Um, a little bit that I was a keener and a loud mouth, but he, I also was in a very small, intimate program. There were only 16 of us in the engineering chemistry program. And he was at the time, the uh, sort of uh, department chair um, of, of the, of the committee, uh, sorry, of the program. So my year was quite a small program. It was quite intimate and he would have us over to his house um, the, by year uh, at the end of the year and really got to know us. And then as associate dean, he would have seen me doing student government work, mm -hmm. both in the engineering society and then later in the alma mater society, which was the center, central student government. So he knew me extremely well. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think one of the things I'm hearing from your story as well is that you also took action to get out from behind the books. Yes. To be front and center to giving voice to issues and causes that were in your heart. And so by actually taking that action, you were able to demonstrate who you were and what you were. For sure. And, and I think the, for me, I always say that the most pivotal moment in my life was the Montreal Massacre, because before that, I was active in student government after getting through my first year. First year, I was a little timid um, because I was worried about not doing well. And then when I did well in first year academically, I thought, oh, okay, now I can take some other things on. So mm -hmm. I ran for a position on the Engineering Society and started to get involved in things. And uh, But it was still a little bit of um, organizing for organizing sake or organizing because you want to be involved in something. So being a on faculty council, that kind of thing, it was, it was great. And then after the Montreal Massacre, the motivation shifted to, I want to change the world. So it changed to a sense of mission as opposed mm -hmm. to, I'm a good organizer, where can I organize to... I'm a good organizer and I want, I want more women to be getting into engineering. I want to change and violence against women, those sorts of things. So it really changed to a, to much more of a purposeful leadership. Right. Right. Taking it still a skill that you knew you had, but then wrapping around an actual purpose and intention. Exactly. And I think that's what people saw. And I think that's why I won the scholarship because I, that was pretty clear in the choices that I was making at that. Before the Montreal Massacre, I probably wouldn't have wanted to give up a year of my life to take on the student government because I was in such a hurry mm -hmm. to graduate and to do all of those things. But this, you know, sense that, no, I actually really want to make a difference. Take us back willing. to when you woke up. How, how did that actually unfold for you? So the Montreal Massacre happened on December the 6th, uh, 1989. 
and the news reports came out it was during exams the women who were shot were actually at Ecole Polytechnic writing exams that's right and I was home studying and so for my exams I I have this vague sense of being in in the kitchen hearing about it but I don't remember if I heard it on the radio or heard it from a friend or my mother called all of those things kind of happened pretty quickly where we all were getting in touch with each other mother of a woman in engineering immediately you know got on the phone and it was just very scary very uncertain what was happening and um and I remember the thing I remember really strongly were two things one was that the my female friends really pulled together we we felt this extremely um personally it was an extremely personal experience because the Mark Lapine it became very or quite quickly known that he had targeted the women, he had separated yeah. them out because they were women in engineering. And that was a uh, feminist act in his mind. And some women would say, I was not a feminist. And actually I owned that word. I Before that event, I probably would not have said I was a feminist, but after that event, I was like, you're right, I am a feminist because I absolutely deserve to be here and more women should be here. So it was, the so women got together, we took it extremely personally. Um, and you know, our parents, um, were worried about us, you know, so it was very much, and, but because it was exams, a lot of people didn't really know what was going on and weren't paying a lot of attention. And so I remember some of my male friends, they didn't take it as personally. They were shocked, mm-hmm. but I remember talking to one guy, great guy, but he's like, oh no, he was just a sick guy. It wasn't an attack on women. You know, there was a bit of a debate of, was this an attack on women or not? And that was when I realized it actually really mattered that whether or not that was an attack on women or a random event, um, there were a whole bunch of things around it. And, and, uh, and so I had a, I had a political response as well as a personal response to what happened. And that became very clear, very quickly, uh, where I think as a woman, I recognized what a massive deal this was. And some of the men, because they were so busy and preparing for exams and things like that, they, it took them longer to to wrap their heads around what was happening and why it mattered. And, and that's where I realized, um, I guess it it just kind of spurred me to action and just speaking up. Yeah. And what I'm hearing is um, it really struck a chord with principles, Mm -hmm. right? So there's a political side, there's a feminist side, but there's also just a a human principle side there. And it's interesting because when all of a sudden it's women and they're being targeted for being a woman, even though you're at a different university, just being an engineer, being there, recognizing that we're women together and it could have happened in another university. There's been other incidents since that have targeted women. You realize the vulnerability. Yes, absolutely. And the importance of being able to correct the story to say, no, women were being targeted because of their gender. Yeah. I want to shift to the topic of recognition. Because mm. throughout your career, you've clearly been able to accomplish great things, get the recognition, be able to take on greater levels of responsibility. Yeah, so, so I was working at the Xerox Research Center of Canada, and um, the main measure of success from a day-to-day, year-to-year um, uh, at, at the Xerox Research Center was inventions, so the number of patents that you would win. And, um, and so there was a big emphasis on invention and creativity, which was fantastic, a very exciting place to work. Uh, but it also tended to set up a little bit of competition. So um, people were not always willing to share all of their information or 
able to share all of their information because they were so busy doing what they needed to do. And the, this team, quite a, multi, a large multidisciplinary team that was trying to resolve a problem or data, but no information. Think of it as a six step process. And so I was involved in the first step. And I started to um, track the information that I was putting in into my own database and then started to build that up to follow this through all the way through to the final products that we were trying to make and then evaluate. And we started to be able to build some correlations. And I was quite junior. And so my approach was, hey, I've built this tool that can be useful to the characterization guys. And so the characterization team started calling me up for being able to track it. And so my, 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 tool, my tool became the team tool. And it was interesting that I didn't do it because I wanted to uh, be in charge. It was in my first little bit of time there. But the behavior that I was exhibiting, both from the um, organizational behavior, the analytical behavior, but also the cultural behavior that I was displaying became quite recognized. And so I was started to be given a more of a leadership opportunity to actually um, set direction so and and um, take on leading smaller teams and and eventually quite large teams and I think it was that that recognition of who is the leader um, was that I was displaying certain qualities that other people weren't displaying that whether it was my analytical and organizational capability or whether it was my cultural approach of building collaboration on the team Right. And one of the things I'm hearing, mm -hmm. taking action from a principled perspective, not a self-interested one, not because I want to be in the limelight. There's an issue here. I need to speak out on it. There's a problem here I need to solve. It's going to help the team. So taking action from a principled yeah. position, the grain may be going the other way. Um, so for example, if information is being more controlled, when all of a sudden you share it, it stands out just by the difference, by the contrast, if you will. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and, and I think the other thing that, that happened, I always say um, one of the best things I did in my career at Xerox was have three children because each, each time I had a child, I was promoted within a year of coming back. And one of the reasons that that happened is that I, you, would, you would build something, you would become known for X, like running the database, for example. Um, but when I had my first child, I went off for six months and when I, and, but they still needed that database to be running. So somebody else started to sort of run the data, run the database. And so when I came back, as opposed to saying, I want that role back, I had to find a new role. And so actually it allowed me to go up a level in terms of leadership and thinking. And that happened three times in the, in my career, each time that I, um, went on maternity leave, I was forced to let go of something, hmm. which gave me a chance to look up and around and sort of take on a slightly higher level thinking task. And that kind of allowed me to not get stuck, which I think sometimes people also can hold on too tight. Yes. Um, Pregnancy was a wonderful way of getting promoted for me. <laughs> That's <laughs> counter, a great story. Counterintuitive, yeah. for sure, yeah. for sure. And that's actually really interesting. That's a really interesting perspective. When you've solved problems in your corporate world, and I've heard some women find this, they, they end up solving a problem, they do good, and then they wait. They wait to see that the results will speak for themselves. And then you speak to other women, and they're saying, no, you have to do the results, but then you got to advocate. How did you strike the balance between advocating 
and and also staying true to your principles of just doing it for the for the reason that mm. it's the right thing to do. Mm. Very vocal person. I'm a very um, expressive person, and so I actually think that I I was able to do it because I just liked telling everybody what was going on and sharing information in that way as well. So it wasn't so much saying, hey, you higher level person, you need to know what I'm doing, but it was kind of a natural thing for me to be talking about what we were doing and what we were learning. I did do things like, um, I probably did things like, certainly later in my career, nominating my team for recognition, that kind of thing, so that my team's recognition became my recognition. So that was something that I did, doing that A, to motivate my team, but also because we needed to get the word out that we were doing really interesting and good things. So I advocated in that way. Right. Um, I also, because I'm a good speaker, I was often invited to talk about what we were doing and why we were doing it. So I was actually very fortunate that I was given platforms when I was at Hatch, I was literally given, you know, opportunities to talk about what I was doing in our global um, webcasts when we would have these annual meetings because I'm I'm good yes. at speaking, and so I was didn't have to push too hard to advocate for myself. It was just sort of a normal way of talking about what I was inter interested in and doing, and and that way it felt natural to me, and I think it came across as. Um, genuine um and, right. and and no one was questioning my motives absolutely yeah. absolutely when you go after the bigger goal of where the corporation is going and where you're trying to achieve results if you're aligned with that jet stream then it's all good yeah mm -hmm. yeah and do you find as you're taking on the new role here with the iLead program do you find that as women through the generations in terms of women being able to get up there and advocate and share what they're doing has that shifted over the years do you think from generation to generation I, I think I think so I think um, you know and I would also say that I saw other women that I worked with that struggled more with it that had to be more forceful um, and often would get a bit punished for being forceful. So, um, so, so Can you describe that a little bit? Uh, I do know that I had a couple of other fr um, friends who were not in as privileged a position or, or for whatever reason had to advocate for themselves. And, um, and they, uh, they found that when they had to make a point of advocating for themselves, that they were not rewarded for that, that they started to be seen as, um, uh, maybe difficult or maybe they're all oh, this person's going on again. So what do you so think that is? I think there's a huge gender bias. And so I think that when um, when a guy tells you all the things that they've done, um, people hear them. And I think that the women aren't always as heard. And so then the woman will have to say it again and again and again. And so I think there's some really interesting gender dynamic things that go on. And I observed that with a number of my colleagues, different ages and stages in their careers, but I saw a number of uh, my friends who really struggled to get the recognition and then became, got into a position where they were start, starting to be seen as a bit militant and mm. demanding this recognition. And that kind of crossed a line um, of what was considered acceptable behavior. And again, I think that was highly gendered. Um, and so many of them in frustration moved on. Is there a communication um, yeah. dynamic when you're speaking with uh, a room of men? 
um, just resonates so that they're hearing you as, as one of the guys. It's sounding familiar. It's sounding a certain way to them. When working with a bunch of men, it's like knowing, knowing how to play ball with the boys. Yeah, yeah. It's not the classroom. It's the schoolyard. Yeah. I, and I, it's interesting. I would say that in terms of building personal relationships, um, these other friends of mine were also very good at that. Um, I think, I think if I reflect back on, and I can think of about five different women that I saw this happening with, um, I think that my natural inclination was to talk about the team and to talk about myself as part of a group. And the others, for whatever reason, because of their circumstances, because of what they were actually doing, um, started to talk more about their, themselves as individuals and how they were being measured against others on the team. So they started to move the highlight to them as individuals. And I actually think I've hidden behind the team a little bit, um, but it's been more acceptable to people to hear about me talking about the team than talking about myself. I think that's one one strategy that I've yeah. used. And it wasn't a deliberate strategy. I think it's partly the way I'm wired. Um, but looking back on it, I think that's been one very important thing. I also think that I have been um, uh, less brave, actually, than those other women. Those other women have been more willing to speak up, to call people out, uh, than I have at times. I've let a lot roll off my shoulders and, uh, and just sort of said, okay, I'll deal with that later. I've been very trusting and I have been, I have been rewarded for that trust. So I haven't negotiated a lot of raises. I haven't pushed, you know, asked for a lot. Um, I remember when I got a really big promotion at Hatch, when I was made a managing director, I remember saying to my boss, I'm not going to ask you for a raise because I trust that when we get the time in the year that that all happens, that Hatch is going to take good care of me and is going to recognize my contribution. So I didn't demand, I just sort of expressed my trust in the organization and that was rewarded, absolutely. And, and so in some ways that's kind of a little bit chicken, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not a very, I'm assertive, but I'm not aggressive. And sometimes I feel like maybe I have, have had to learn to be a little bit more aggressive and to ask for more as I've gone through. Um, I remember when I was negotiating my contract with Hatch, um, being told you need to ask for more money. And someone pointed out to me, they're hiring you to be somebody who can negotiate on their behalf. So you need to negotiate on your own behalf. Right. And it was the most uncomfortable thing I ever had to do was to ask for more money, which classically women don't. And in that case, I was able to negotiate a, you know, a slightly better package. So I think there's that kind of get that balance between being assertive, being confident, but also displaying loyalty and all of the other right. things that I think men really highly value. So the idea that I'm on this team and I trust this team and they can trust you and then they can trust me. And I, right. I, I think that that has been that I think that certainly seemed to work extremely well for me. Sounds like you've really found a nice nuance to that dance from the time you were advocating um, a university student mm -hmm. to then moving into a corporate world where you're feeling the relationships, you're feeling the pack, you're feeling the corporation, the culture, and how to build those relationships based on trust despite gender differences and using language to be able to communicate effectively. Yeah, yeah. And, and one thing I did get better at as I got older was picking your battles, obviously very important. I did get braver at 
speaking out on things, but I usually was very careful on when I spoke out. So a couple of examples um, where uh, I had had a really negative interaction with someone in a large meeting and rather than call the person out on that immediately in the meeting and certainly uh, even actually um, the next day, I actually waited a week and uh, so that the emotion calmed so, down. So that the emotion calmed down right. for myself. Um, I I thought it was interesting that this person did not initiate it, even though they were more senior. Um, but I approached them and said, "I think we really need to talk about what happened last week." And um, and we had a very constructive. And I started the conversation with, "You know, I know that this was not what you intended to happen, but this is what happened." And I think you've heard. He'd heard that this is what had happened. He people had talked to him about it, um, but I went in with an assumption of positive positive intent from him, yes. and so we could understand what went wrong and and sort of what was he trying to say and what was and so it became very much around these actions. Th these actions were not acceptable, but I know that 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 the actions didn't match the intent. And so we actually had a very constructive conversation, which I would not have been able to have if I had it right away. Right, when you're in the emotional throes of it. Exactly. And it's so true. I often, um, in those moments where you're having a difficult conversation, it, I always believe in separating out the action that somebody did versus their character. Yes, exactly. Because often we have different pressures coming at us and it just happens that one thing was the the needle that broke the, the camel's back, right? Or I think I got that expression wrong because I usually get expressions wrong. <laughs> the straw that broke the camel's back. Thank you. The straw that <laughs> broke the camel's back. Absolutely. And it's not to say that it was right and that you can condone it, but that you know that that's not the character of the person. That's and that, right. that allows people to come out of those situations with a bit of grace. You mentioned previously that you've found just in general observations that women are better doers, men are better delegators. <laughs> Can you unpack that a little for me? Yeah, I think I think that um, my experience, especially as I become more senior, is that um, one of the limits to anybody in moving ahead into more executive roles is that most of us have become, um, have built up our respect based on what we do. So I'm, especially if you're a professional. So I'm an engineer, I run the calculations, I do the analysis, I oversee the experiment, whatever it is that I do. And, um, and so you become defined by what you do. And as you move to an executive role, uh, it's actually quite difficult to let go that doing. And yet you have to, because you can't, can't continue to do more and more and more. You have to trust the people that you're that are working for you. And what I saw as I got to more senior levels in in the company, um, especially at Hatch, was that the men seem to be a little bit better at at making that transition. And sometimes, uh, but I found that sometimes I find that women, um, especially in it, when they're in a male dominated area where they have this respect from what they do, it's I think especially hard for women to let that that let that go and back to that experience from my pregnancies that was an experience that I had early on was that when I let go of these tasks that seemed so important to me and were so a definition of who I was and what my job was when I let those go I discovered that there were new tasks that I could do that new were maybe new opportunities slightly higher 
um, value to the organization even. I also gave someone else an opportunity to take on that job and, and so move right. up a little bit behind me. And so I saw, I, and, I, and I still struggled at times to let go of things. I'm still more of a doer than a lot of the other men that I've worked with. Um, but I kind of that executive um, way of looking at the world and uh, that, that I had to learn. And w- when I was promoted to an executive role at Hatch, the, I didn't ask for a raise, but the one thing I did ask for was a, an executive coach. And, um, and, they, and they gave it to me, which was fantastic. And the one thing that that person worked on me with was, was deciding what I, I needed to do and what I need to be able to ask others to do and really be very deliberate about that. Mm. And, and that helped me to make that transition. Yeah. So perhaps to your point earlier that women see their identity and their self-worth in the doing, and perhaps men see their self-worth in the delegating. So mm-hmm. if you think of a commander of an army, well, that's what little boys often will mock play, yeah. Yeah. right? It's all delegating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I also thought too, I also think too that in society as women, as women have moved into the workforce over the last 75 years, we've been told that, you know, we can have it all, mm-hmm. we can do it all, and we can do it all on our own. Yeah. And I think that as uh, as a population, we have we have bought that yes. and we've internalized it to Absolutely. a huge extent. And I think that also drives us drives us as individuals whereas with men that alpha male model as soon as you think of an alpha male at least in my head I think of a pack I think of a pack of animals and there's the alpha and that alpha is supposed to lead that group and so even from a young age boys are figuring out their rank and file within their pack and if I compare to how girls are socially conditioned, it's often based on an exclusion. Mm-hmm. You're either in or you're out yeah. with the popular group, for example. I think as women carry that into their careers where we start mixing the genders in the workplace, it doesn't always serve us too well. Yeah, I think I think it's interesting when I think about the, um, the crises of confidence that I've had in my career, it's primarily been about what I do as a mother and as a wife. And so the, uh, not that long ago, I had this meltdown at, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I just turned 50 and I had this meltdown the other day because I was not inspired to make a wonderful dinner for my family on a Sunday night and my kids were sick or something. I can't remember what it was, but for whatever reason, it all turned into, I'm a terrible mother because I'm not doing this thing. Mm. And my daughter who is 16 looked at me and just said, are you kidding me? <laughs> she wasn't going to call me out on this, but it was sort of like what I do. Do I bake cookies? Do I make a delicious dinner? That doing was a really important way as opposed to saying, you know, I, my husband and I, as it, my husband would never lose a moment's sleep over whether or not he, he did it or not. Um, right. that kind of, you know, if we order in, that's okay. And, uh, but my worth as an individual was being measured in that moment for whatever stress I was under mm-hmm. was being measured by what I did as opposed to who I was. And, and I think there's something really fundamental in our expectations of ourselves that women are still struggling through, or at least I'm still struggling just, through. just want to go a bit deeper on that. So our sense of identity is tied to what we do rather than who we are. Mm-hmm. I, I would say in moments of stress, for me, I go back to the what do I do? And maybe this is part of being an engineer, where engineering is a 
Um, engineers have a real problem with this as they leave the technical. Many engineers say, well, I'm no longer an engineer. So maybe it's partly my engineering mindset. Um, but I also think that when I think about being a mother, a lot of it is what I do for my children as opposed to who I am to my children. And which is to them, it's not what I, I mean, what I do is a manifestation of what I am to them or has created that. But certainly um, they, they, they don't look for, you know, oh, mom, you're not a good mother today because you didn't make cookies. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and I think that's a real fundamental challenge. I, I completely agree. I think a lot of women, I know for sure I struggled with the sense of identity and career versus identity and who I am. And when I go unpacked it in my experience, I came to this spot where it's who am I and what are my principles and values and from that rock, I choose how to act or how to do. Mm-hmm. And so when I'm in those moments, and usually I can feel those moments of tension mm-hmm. because there's a conflict somewhere. There's a conflict in that, you know, I'll just role play with your example. I should be making a, a beautiful meal for my family because that shows that I love them versus me showing up. They know I love them. Yeah. And today is just one of those days where we're going to do something else for dinner because that's the right thing to do because there's someone who's sick, there's someone who's under stress, and there's all these other factors. Yeah. So let's give our, give us a little, little bit of grace around this table and we're doing pizza tonight, right? <laughs> exactly. And in fact, showing up for your kids in that way also helps them to shift away from maybe that social stereotype of what makes a good mother, a good mother, or what yes. makes a person worthy or unworthy. And I think men also grapple with a lot of these stereotypes oh, for sure. too. And increasingly so now, because I think that men are, are seeing, um, it's been so exciting to see young men grappling with some of the same issues. Um, it, it, that's a form of equality that hopefully eventually we'll all get there without having to grapple quite so much. But I certainly see young men that I've worked with who are trying to figure out. I had one wonderful, oh, this was one of my great stories. Uh, I just finished teaching an engineering leadership class and everybody had to put their mission and their vision and sort of come up with their personal vision. And it was, what, what, what are your talents? What are your passions? Um, what are your values? And then, and what will you use this for? What do you want your contribution to be? And one of the young men put as his contribution that he would use all of his talents and passions and values to accomplish this technical thing and to be a good father and husband. And I was like, wow, I've never seen a man put that on their personal vision statement at, you know, 20, 21 years old. I thought that was pretty incredible. So I invited Tim to come and have dinner at my house and meet my daughters. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like a little bit of magic. (laughs) No, I didn't. I thought about it. (laughs) But you know, what it, what it reminds me of is when you were invited back to your professor's home for dinner. Yeah. Right. And you're paying it forward. Absolutely. Yeah. No, he was, he, uh, yeah. And, 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 Jim McCowan and his wife were a wonderful example of a true partnership. You know, I had lots of wonderful men who actually, I would say Jim McCowan is probably someone who worried a lot about who he was as a father and talked about who he was as a father and husband, um, as well as being a university professor. So there's certainly many men who think about these things. And I think a lot of men do think about them. 
men do want to provide and protect their families at a really fundamental level. And I think a lot of men, even more so these days, want to participate as fathers, as husbands, Mm -hmm. and have a richer experience in their Mm -hmm. life in those roles as well. But what I'm excited by is that they're actually putting it on paper. Yeah. Because I think that's a transformation. Absolutely. Especially at 20 years. Usually it's when they find the love of their lives where that starts to kick in. Yes, exactly. Until then, it's it's a little more elusive. So it sounds like you've had a number of, and I'm going to put this term in a bit of air quotes, heroes in your life. Mm -hmm. But I call them heroes because in some cases we have coaches, we have mentors who definitely are instrumental in helping to build us. But then sometimes there are those real key people where our lives because of them shift. Mm -hmm. They Mm -hmm. change their trajectory. So can you tell me a little bit about the heroes that have played that role in your life? Sure. Um, so I mentioned Jim McCowan already. He certainly was a hero um, as, as an undergrad. And then my next hero was Paul Zabo, who was the head of the scale-up engineering lab at Xerox. One of the reasons to me Paul's a hero is all, all of my heroes are different than me in the sense that I will I never would have thought I could be that person but they were all people I wanted to be more like. And so, um, you know, Jim McCowan, the way he treated us as students, really important. Paul was um, a real visionary, a real advocate for the Xerox Research Center of Canada, which as a, you know, a Canadian subsidiary um, was always in some threat. Um, He was a great advocate, uh, built an incredible uh, pilot plant up, secured incredible amounts of money to do that at Xerox and technically was excellent, you know, incredible mentor and, and trainer of all of us. But the thing that really always struck me so much about, about Paul was that he literally loved his team. Mm. He, he would have us over every year for a huge barbecue in the summer. Um, and he would just, the generosity, that sense of hospitality, it was absolutely from his heart, incredibly genuine. He knew everybody's children and their children's children and he was just an incredibly genuine person and the word I would use is love it wasn't just that he knew his people he loved his people Mm -hmm. and his people loved him back Mm -hmm. Um, so he was an incredible leader in that way and he brought safety into that as well that he wanted to keep us safe Um, we were working in a relatively dangerous environment and he had seen someone die back in uh, Romania in an industrial accident and so he brought that passion for safety with him as well to the way that he trained us but you always got this sense of him teaching us because he loved us and when he retired he went on to teach and that was something I think the students felt about him as well that he he really cared about them as individuals and Mm. had a great passion for his field but wanted to share that with with the individuals because of his love for them. It was really, really powerful. Um, so he was a real hero to me because to see someone who was so technically proficient, right? Um, so such a hard worker and so demanding and visionary, but also had this incredible loving heart. How did he balance that to seeing the vision of where he wanted his team to go and really encouraging them and then pouring all this love into them because pouring love into people can sometimes feel soft. I think it was a little bit like a, um, you know, like sort of the the ideal of parenting. Uh, So there was expectation and there was, um, 
there was always a sense of helping you to become, helping the team to become, helping the organization to become. So there was always this quest for excellence, but there, but it wasn't a harsh drive. It was a loving pull. So like a nurturing. Yeah. There was a nurturing aspect to Paul. And I knew him later in his career, so he may have not been quite as nurturing when he was younger, but my sense is that there was always that shared sharing of passion um, that really pulled people along with him. Um, he could get into, um, I think if you were on the other end of an advocacy, um, I think he could be pretty tough, but for his team, yeah. there was an incredible um, pull, uh, pull as opposed to a push. And, and I think that was it. And I think when I see people who are wonderful parents of, of highly accomplished children. A lot mm-hmm. of it is that same kind of loving, um, loving expectation. Loving, right. Yeah. It's not so much encouragement as we can get there and I'm going to help you to get there. Right. And, and what do we need to do to get there? That's beautiful. Any others? At Hatch, the hero was, um, Bert Wasmond, um, who still, as far as I know, is still going in, um, every day. Um, he would be, into a later, much later, past retirement age, shall we say, conventional retirement age. I won't reveal his age. Um, but Bert was a similar personality in some ways to, to Paul in that highly accomplished, um, highly uh, intelligent, a wonderful mentor. I think for me, the, the hero that I saw in Bert, I met him later in his career, um, but Bert had an incredible curiosity for people um, that he met, and he was an incredible spotter of talent. So when he interviewed people, he would make um, the HR professionals, you know, they, they would go crazy because you always <laughs> wanted to ask, you know, tell me about your family. What did your father do? Right. You know, all these illegal <laughs> questions. And he wouldn't judge you by what your father did. He, yeah. he just really wanted to know who were you? Where did you come from? And he, and he spent a huge amount of time mentoring and teaching people. He always had young engineers working with him, coming and sitting with him. And, and he would be with his pencil still doing He was someone who was still doing the engineering. Someone described him to me as the only person that can go into a sales meeting and do the ask, do the explain, and do the close. Like on one meeting, he'd go to a plant and he'd come out with a purchase order um, because he'd say, what's going on in the plant? And the person would tell them and he'd ask a few questions and he'd say, I wonder if this is this, maybe we should look at, and he would kind of have an idea and by the time he'd left, he'd sketched out what they were going to do and would have a purchase order in his hand. And then he'd come back and get a, a group of juniors working on Amazing. this problem with him. A- incredible mind, um, incredible um, attention to detail. Always had a row of sharpened pencils on his HB pencils all lined up on the desk in front of him, ready to get in there. Every offer letter that he sent out, he would go through meticulously and making sure that it reflected the person that they were sending the offer letter to. I mean, just so meticulous on the care of the people as well as the care of the technical. And yet also that ability to look 30,000 feet and really be able to scope out where the challenge, where the solutions are. How did he impact you? I, I, as I said, I met him when I was quite late in, relatively late in his career. Um, and, uh, and I was coming mid career into hatch into a very male environment, um, mining is something that I didn't mining know energy, mining, infrastructure, yeah, big engineering. And <laughs> yeah. so I was definitely suffering from imposter syndrome. Uh, I had been brought in to help look at new technology areas. And so I ended up spending a lot of time with Bert 
And um, he just spent a lot of time with me and a lot of time um, answering my questions. We worked on some things together. We worked on some files together. He was very good at giving you very specific, um, very specific, genuine feedback, um, but not in a conventional way. Like he was a very unconventional person, but you knew when you did well. And uh, and he was your once you were on. He was a fan of yours. He you know he was your he was, fan for life. Um, great curiosity. So he would push you to go back and answer another question because you haven't answered them all yet. Um, and just, yeah, it was really just spending time and modeling how to do the, ask these sorts of questions, organize this kind of stuff. I think that for me was, um, and, and helped me to sort of figure out the role that I could play and the way that I could bring my skills to the table in a very organic, just literally spending time figuring it out. Nice. Um, and I think a lot of people would say that about Bert. He worked outrageous hours. Um, post-retirement, we always joked that he had scaled back. So he was only working, you know, 50 hours a week. Um, <laughs> but he, right. you know, he was still in the office every day. But he, I, so I think for me, it was really that um, curiosity um, that he displayed and making me, um, because he was so good at identifying talent, you started to realize that here is this person who was so highly technical and yet he appreciates people for a whole range of different talents that they bring. Right. He could recognize talent and a multiplicity of talents. Mm -hmm. And that was pretty unusual for someone that's, again, that's so highly technical um, that they, he, he recognized people for their character. He recognized people for their specific, you know, a great finance mind or a great HR mind or a great organizer. He could see how those people could all fit into what, what needed to happen. Pretty amazing. Very, yeah, that is, that is because often people have a certain perspective and it's usually honed over a period of time, but it sounds so he's able to see the skills and talents, but also the humanity behind the person. Absolutely. Yeah. So you've always said that people are so important for you and that um, you also bring a technical background to the various roles, but what really is exciting you the most is working with teams on unlocking the potential in people. So what are your superpowers? <laughs> in unlocking that potential and working with people? Um, I think my superpower is, um, I guess I say transparency. It might not be quite the right word, but I'm very open. Openness maybe better than transparency. I'm very open about my own stories, my own embarrassments, my own. Um, and so there's, I think that can be um, disarming for people and so it helps people to get comfortable so that they can then start to open up and share and explore think that I come across when I'm talking with students or when I'm talking with people that I'm working with as judging them I'm I'm sort of I so but I think because again I hope I bring some of Bert's curiosity and some of Paul's love to the equation uh, but I think it's also that I am very open and very transparent. And I think that's my superpower. It has been this willingness to engage and something that I've gotten better at doing to build up trust. So even the, I wasn't as good at doing it with quiet people. Um, but as I've worked through engineering, I've had to learn to do it with a lot of more introverted and quiet people. So tell me a little bit about that. So because I am so expressive and so gregarious and so open, um, I used to suffer under the misinformation um, that if someone was quiet, 
I would, my own insecurity was that, well, that person doesn't like me because they're quiet, because they're not engaging with me. They're obviously not interested in me or they don't like me. And it took me a while of working with a lot of quiet people to realize that, no, they're just quiet and, uh, and maybe they don't have anything to say, or maybe they do think I'm a little loud and abrasive, but they're, they're getting their work done or whatever it was. So as I started to have formal relationships with quiet people, because I was their manager, it forced me to start engaging um, and I got much better at modulating my own style um, to, to be able to establish relationships with those people and, um, and to start to learn that, oh, like I'm, I'm reading so much intention right. behind the behavior that is actually not true at all. And so I was able to get much better at um, establishing relationships by, as I say, pulling, pulling back, listening more. And, but and then eventually getting those people to open up in a way that was comfortable for them. Right. It's amazing. We often have that real play in our mind about mm -hmm. what other people are thinking about us. And most of the time they're sitting there wondering what we're thinking about them. Exactly. And if we all could just shut that down yeah. and just have an open and transparent conversation on whatever problem we're trying to solve or where reality actually is, we would all just get ahead absolutely a little better absolutely so how are you using those superpowers in the lives of other people so i think now with teaching um it it, it is allowing me to um I, i'm getting better and better at um pulling students into the conversation uh whether it is um literally tricks like I'm teaching a, a, a group of 45 students my goal is by the third class I know every name in that class and I've had students say oh, you know my name like it, it's not that usual for professors to, to to learn their names that quickly unfortunately especially because they've often been used to larger classes and so it's something that I try to do to establish that name con convention right away um, to um, to try and to try and read when people are ready to engage. I, yeah. I think that's where, so that I can be pulling people into the learning or the conversation um, and creating different opportunities for different people to, and so um, in a classroom is where I'm really doing this the most right now, but there are some people that will never want to talk in front of 45 people. And so let's give them an opportunity to talk in front of three uh, and, and let's, um, or let's even set up the one-on-one. -on -one. So I, I've been able to, uh, and in some of those, some cases, it might be putting a little bit of feedback on a student's paper where I've seen something really interesting that they've written and making that personal connection into what they've written to establish that relationship in that written form. So I, I think, I think those are things I used to do in the professional world and mm -hmm. I'm now bringing it to my classroom is just finding the multiple ways that I can start to sort of create that relationship. And then I can start helping those students or in my, in my previous life, the people I was working with to trust a little bit more as they're exploring these new areas. It's amazing. Like one of the common threads I've heard throughout our conversation is showing up in each other's lives as humans. Mm -hmm. So whether it's a curiosity about who that person is and what's their framework, what's their worldview, how do they communicate, or if it's showing up from a position of love, that we are a team, we are going to go to the moon and back, mm -hmm. and I'm going to have your back, and we're going to make sure that everybody yeah. is safe here, um, to just knowing the names of your students. Something as simple as that essentially is saying, hey, 
I recognize you, I see you, and I know your name. Yeah. So that human connection, that yeah. human relationship is so profound. I would have said probably a few years ago that my superpower was creating community, which it is. But when I was younger, when I was the head girl or the, you know, the head of the student union, creating community from what you met getting up in front of a crowd of people and talking about what we need to do. Over the years, I've learned that creating community is about that individual thing and, 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 and building that individual, that individual trust so that you have real inclusion in that community. Right. So yes, I want to set the tone and yes, I want to set the feeling of the classroom, but it's the vision of where you want to go, the vision of where you want to go. But that individual one-on-one I've really learned as, and I've really learned that at work because you started to realize, oh, I've set this vision and, you know, 20 of the people are moving, but five of them, I'm not sure. And it needed that, that conversation to happen to get all 25 moving. And that was something that I, I hadn't learned as a younger person, where it was more about being the cheerleader or the, um, the person up at the front leading the troops. Now I spend a lot more time on relationship. And I've seen too that some of the best leaders are the ones who are willing to build those human connections with their team and at the same time are willing to delegate, to let go when they Mm -hmm. need to let go. But when it's actually the buck stops with them and they need to stand at the front of that pack and take the sling of arrows and fight um, to defend where they're trying to go and all the hard work they've done, they're willing, they're the first ones to actually stand at the front of the crowd. What's your vision for the future? If you were to, what's one aspect of all of this that you would like to see different in the world? Um, So I'm really interested now in um, the engineering profession. That's obviously, I've chosen to come back to the university to look at leadership in the profession. And I really believe that um, building a more inclusive um, profession by the participation of women or other minorities, uh, there's a stereotype that engineers are all introverts and very analytical. And yet we know that engineering students are not all that all like that. So does the professional experience weed those people out um, or weed out the people that don't fit that mold? Would the profession be stronger if the people who start all kind of continue on in the profession? What, how would we be different? I don't think we want to lose the analytical capability of being great engineers, um, but I certainly see that the students that I have have this wide range of talents and I'd like to keep those in the profession. So I'm really interested in how engineering as an, as an inclusive profession, as a profession that can better uh, converse with the world um, on these technical issues um, and, and take more leadership. So though that for me, the future, um, my mission statement was something like, um, changing the nature of engineering so that it will be uh, an inclusive and diverse profession. And, and that's that's where I see this leadership piece coming in. And it sounds like you're the perfect person to take on this mission, given that you started your career in, in engineering chemistry yeah. as an engineer. Yeah. And even from the very beginning, you had very strong human relationships with key people along the way all throughout your career. And then you started also embodying those characteristics of what it means to lead the human relationships Mm -hmm. in an engineering field, in Mm -hmm. an engineering Mm -hmm. firm. And I think there really is a place so that if we 
go beyond just the solving of the engineer calculations to what it means to actually lead an engineering company that requires a whole different set of skills. And we don't want to lose those people. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wonderful. Well, Emily, I'd really want to just acknowledge you and thank you for being so open (laughs) and and unpacking how you nurtured your allies and navigated your adversaries and just that nuanced dance of that human relationship and how that's enabled you to uh, really shape where you've gone in your career, which is just incredible. And also who you've become and how that's transformed you throughout your throughout your career and your life. Um, so one of the things on the show is that I know that people, when they hear someone like you, they're saying, okay, well, where is, where is Emily? Mm. And what is this Truest I lead program that she's now heading? Can you tell us a little bit about where listeners might be able to find you? Sure. So Truest I lead, uh, I lead stands for the Institute for Leadership Education in Engineering. And we're based at the uh, University of Toronto. And uh, you can just go onto the web and Google uh, University of Toronto iLead and we'll pop up. And uh, there's lots of information about the program. We offer courses uh, for um, undergrads as well as masters and graduate degree and graduate holders. And we also have a community of practice where we bring industrial partners in to um, participate in some of the research that we're doing and have more cover convene some conversations about these sorts of issues. Amazing. So folks, we're going to be putting those show notes down below and I'll also link to your LinkedIn yeah, for sure. site as yeah. well. All right. So that's going to wrap it up for today. And I just want to remind everybody that as you've clearly heard from Emily today, that by building your relationships with one another, you can actually merge your jet streams and do magical things together. And know that I promise you when your fuel begins to run low and your journey nears the end, It's through your relationships with one another that you will discover blessings more beautiful than you could ever have imagined. We would love to know what you think of this podcast. So do let us know by rating, sharing, reviewing, subscribing, and following us on whenever you listen to podcasts. All the links are below. So until next time, be well, my friend, and go build up one another.